basically my work's about being in the world, but it's also about absorbing what's in my mind and my imagination and bringing those two things together is a slow process. The other thing that I, I really enjoy doing is that I enjoy... This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are talking with Jem Southam. Jem was introduced in a recent video as I was watching as one of the most significant landscape photographers working in Britain today. His work is just magnificent. Born in Bristol in 1950, he's had exhibitions at the Photographer's Gallery in London, the Tate in Cornwall, Victoria and Albert, professor of photography at the University of Plymouth. He is absolutely defining an entire school of landscape photography, and he has a brand new book out called Four Winners, which I am really, really excited to talk about because it is, um, well, it's been described as a balance of poetry and lyricism within a documentary practice, something I'm going to want to unpack here in just a minute. But it is, to use a technical term, just beautiful. It's one of those books that you open and you linger over every single page with a deeply emotional experience. Jem, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks, Scott. Fine, fine. Bit chilly here, but nothing like um, nothing like as cold as it is with you, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, we are recording this in, in the middle part of December here at the Dakota-Minnesota border. It's about to get nasty, but that's that's what December is around here. Jem, you you have got a tremendous career, and we'll talk about a number of your books in a minute. But something that struck me when I was doing some reading about you is that you said when you were in college, you already knew you wanted to be a landscape photographer. So tell tell us the origin story. Tell us how you know the camera first came into your life and why landscape was calling to you and not sports or fashion or anything else. Uh, photography came in at school when I was about 15. I, I wasn't particularly academic, and uh, I was given – in fact, I asked my, my father for a camera for my 15th birthday, and uh, I had a friend at school. We built a darkroom together. We both got engrossed with, with, with black and white printing, and, and, and I just loved it. And I eventually thought I'd much rather go to a, a photography college than a university, and I managed to get into – somewhere called the London College of Printing. There were only four colleges mm -hmm. that were, were that, that offered photographic programs there, and that's 1969. And it was in the second year. I was taking a photograph. It was a still life of an apple. And uh, I was take, I was looking through the 5.4 uh, camera screen on the camera with a dark cloth over my head in the studio. And I had this moment of epiphany. I've had about three or four in my life when I, I remember taking literally one of those memories you have. I took the hood off off my head and I stood looking at this apple and I said to myself this is what I want to do the rest of my life I want to be a color photographer I want to photograph the English landscape and I want to do it with field cameras there's something about looking at a screen this apple basically symbolized metaphorically the English landscape for me and I knew then I wanted to be a color landscape photographer of the English landscape well, I mean, color back then was brand new. Um, was there something about the avant-garde just in, in a technical process that was calling to you, or was that just a better representation of what you were feeling? 
it was my my sensibility. Nothing to do with anything to do with with with, with technicalities or with profound conceptual kind of understanding. I just thought this is this is this is what I want to do, and it took me ten years to begin to work in color because at the time when I first started, when I left college, I started working with with transparency film, and I could print that in those days, and and I knew I wanted to be. Uh, the two shows that I saw in London while I was a student, one was a Paul Strand, one was a Bill Brandt. And those were the two exhibitions that sort of said that, that I, I, I thought, right, I want to be a photographer who makes work and, and exhibits and shows it. I, I, I have no commercial attitude or ability, so that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I've done. It's 50 years since I left college. Uh, but it took 10 years to, to begin to start working with colour negative films, in a, in we, we came a bit behind you in, uh, in, in the States here, and, and it was looking at Eggleston and Shaw and suddenly realising that one could make colour pictures using uh, negative films that, that, that started the whole ball rolling. What, what is it about the larger formats? Because you're not walking around, you know, with a little 35 millimeter back in those days, um, you know, or even a you know, 126. You, you went big from the very beginning. Was that... Why? It's a screen. I, I, well, I, Compositionally, when I look at a screen with a dark mm-hmm. cloud over my head, there's something profoundly exciting and wonderful about looking at a screen. The other thing is that I, when I grew up in Bristol, I left college in 1972, moved back to Bristol, didn't know any photographers, set up a small gallery with a friend, bizarrely mm-hmm. called The Photographers Above the Rainbow, ridiculous sort of gallery, but with a lot of fun. <laughs> and a young guy turned up one day, an English young guy called Paul Graham, who's become since become quite a successful, very successful kind of, kind of photographer, lives in New York at the moment. And mm-hmm. um, he, he was working in the art gallery that I was working in, and he kept on buying, all, he worked in the bookshop, and he kept on buying all these incredibly expensive contemporary American books for our, our, our bookshop there. No one read them, but we were all just piling down there and thumbing through them. And he basically introduced us to, 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 the, to me anyway, to that, that, that whole genre of sort of begin, begin, people beginning to work in color. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I just, I'd been working in black and white and I just immediately switched to color. The other thing is that work, when you're working with somebody as talented as Paul or as alongside him, you realize your own sort of not, you know, your own strengths, which aren't quite, quite, quite as, you know, he's a remarkably talented picture maker. I don't make good pictures looking through the viewfinder of a camera. We might come onto this with the with, with all the work in the book that you're looking at at the moment, which was made with the digital camera. I, right. I I don't use the viewfinder. I look at the screen on the back. I hold the camera away from me, so I'm still looking at the screen. There's something about composing on a screen which I which works for me. I'm really wondering why now, you, because you can perceive the context outside of the screen, so your image is in a in a larger context, just to your eye or is there something about having it a, a short ways away from you do you think i think it's away from you but it's also about the way that i make pictures i organize the space on the back of the screen so there's something about the when you're looking through a viewfinder i just i just don't make my best pictures looking through a viewfinder for some reason or other it's it's the screen and it's sort of slightly abstracted and and one of the wonderful things is as you know and your listeners will know about working with a big camera and I, I i quickly moved on to well not quickly but by the 1990s i was working with a 10 field mm-hmm. camera 
is is that the the you know the the screen is a just a the ten eight color screen is just a fabulous thing to look at. But you organize pictures in a certain kind of way. They're abstracted. Or you're upside. You know the image is reversed. And and I had a whole series. I have a whole series of rules about how I organize pictures. And yeah, it, it screen just just uh, I, I like composing on a screen. Oh my! You obviously are in love with the southwest of England, and. Mm. You know, you you are not going off for quick hits, parachuting in in exotic places all around the planet. And you have been described a number of times as working exclusively in series. What what about, first of all, you know, your native landscape and what about the series called to you? And and, and how do you see that defining how people are going to think about you? Well, I'm very, very lucky when I when I when I I'm, I'm from Bristol, I'm from the southwest of England. And when I moved to Cornwall, where I started working on a body of work called the Red River, uh, our Red River, not your Red River, which we might come to <laughs> in a little bit, uh, I, I was, you know, head over heels with with the new topographics movement and with you know the Eggleston and 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 and, and you know Shaw and so on. And I was very influenced. And I one day I can remember walking around and I, in, I was idiotically trying to make pictures that sort of looked a little bit like, you know. Robert Adams pictures or somebody's and I stood up one day I was in in Cornwall's very very damp very 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 wet and I realized that I was an absolute fool because I was <laughs> uh, you know at Robert Adams was standing at about seven or eight thousand feet in the Sierra Nevada with a very very particular climatic and and you know the, the altitude and so on whereas what I ought to do is I ought to explore what was on my doorstep. So, so I'm, I'm just unbelievably lucky. First of all, two things, really, longitude and latitude. The seasons in Britain are the slow, gradual. You know, as we move from one season to another, and we come on to the, 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 the Four Winters book that we'll come on to in, in later on, mm-hmm. our seasons last. They gradually last. They shift about three or four through three or four months. There's these very, very slow, gradual, gradual seasonal shifts. And uh, that that I love the sort of the, the you know and the temperate kind of climate that we have, and and also because of where we are, a lot of the pictures, most of the pictures in the book that we're going to be talking about are made through dawn. I photograph through dawn. Dawn here lasts about an hour and a half from from the very first light to when the sun comes up. The further south you go, the shorter and shorter that gets to you know when you get on the equator. Apparently, it's just boom, the sun comes up. So we have. I've got this this. In the southwest, I've got this damp, muted uh, light. I've got these slow, gradual transitions of season. I've got endlessly fluctuating weather patterns. And for somebody who's interested, I mean, uh, photography, our medium's light. I mean, that's what our medium is, light and, right. and, and, right. and, and sensors and film. And so I work and I live in the most extraordinarily rich and subtly nuanced part of the world being an island off a coast of a of, of, of a continent so britain and japan share this sort of unique and i think there's there are similarities within the sort of aesthetics that, that within the landscape traditions so that's very very important i've only come to realize that the last last you know 10 20 years well, and I, I, again, I, I'm wondering about these long-term projects. And, and long-term is, you know, is, is, is sometimes for you that is long-term in terms of calendar. Sometimes it's long-term as in following the entire course of a river. But as stunning and, and as impressive as every single image of yours is, the compilation is creating a different narrative. 
Mm. Well, what, one of what the, what I, I realized early on that if I was going to do anything significant in my life, I was going to have to do it slowly. Uh, I'm not a particularly kind of precocious person. I was going to have to be very patient and relentlessly sort of slow and low and patient. The other thing I realized was that I was probably going to have to earn a living doing something else. So my circumstances <laughs> and my temperament. So I basically worked in art galleries and then I taught for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I have a family. And, and, and so one of the, you know, one of the things I've had to do is to make work around all, all of the other, other commitments that I have. So I can't, I don't go out photographing every, every, every day, or I haven't done, you know, I remember one year I kept, I keep a diary. I actually, when I was shooting on 10, one year I shot 12 sheets of film in a whole year. But I, kept, I, but I kept going. So I knew that basically if I shot 10 sheets of film a year, because, you know, I was busy and preoccupied, if I got three or four good pictures, all I need to do is keep going for 10 years and I'd have a body of work. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's partly circumstances and, and, and temperament and character. But the other thing is I realized fairly early on that although we, we get onto this, the word documentary that you use at the moment, I don't use that word about my own practice. I make pl- pictures about places. And so one of, the, one of the aims of the photographs is that they are sort of descriptive of a place and a time and an event and a, and a moment and, and, and so forth. But one of the things I realized quite early on when I was making The Red River was that when we actually look at pictures, particularly in this context, landscape pictures, we're looking at them, we're reading them through a, a huge set of conceptual mind filters so that I realized as I was making The Red River that I was seeing the pictures and relating them to images from childhood, TV, films, school, knowledge, all these, all these, you know, dozens and dozens of sort of ways that our mind kind of subconsciously reads pictures that I can make work that explores that. So basically my work's about being in the world, but it's also about absorbing what's in my mind and my imagination and bringing those two things together is a slow process. The other thing that I, I really enjoy doing is that I enjoy the the actual fabrication of a work. When I start a new piece of work, I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. I get interested in a place, and I visit it repeatedly over a period of time, and I make pictures, and I allow that process to, to generate and evolve ideas. And every time I get engaged with a new 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 site, a new place, Basically, I start working, and then I just see how the journey of the pictures that I'm making and my response to those pictures leads me to towards a, a what I call an architecture. So each each piece of work okay. is a structure, an architecture, and that idea of building something I just find incredibly exciting and stimulating. And 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 through that unpacking all of these dense matters to do with 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 you know the landscape tradition. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm suddenly wondering, Jim, because, you know, you, you say the that initial picture for a project is serendipitous, it's accidental or whatever, then you go back and if it keeps speaking to you, then a project evolves. Is there a book of images out there where you took the one image and you thought, yeah, <laughs> mm. I'm, I'm not going back to this one? Uh, well, well, well I, that's a good question. I tend not to because I know once I want, I'll tell you what happens. I take an initial picture. And then most times I'll go back. And okay. It's the second picture. If I take a second picture, I say, aha, uh-huh, we're on here. 
if I can't make a second picture, that 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 site's you know finished. But but usually I do, and it's the second picture where I make another picture, and I just know, wait a minute, yeah, that this this is this is going to work, and I still have no idea what's going to happen. So, you know, I do actually make sometimes very short pieces of work. I'm I'm now making pieces of work that might might take me five minutes. You know, I've got one or two pieces of work where I engage in a site and I go back and back and back over a few minutes and just make mm-hmm. two pictures. I don't always make these long pieces of work, but there's something wonderful about the very slow, steady. Remind me, remind me at the end to just tell you about what I'm doing at the moment. I will. I will. A, a couple projects I want to ask you about, mm. um, you know, just just in particular. And we've already talked about the Red River a little bit, but a number of people may not know that book or and why that river is called Red. You know, the one here, I have no idea why it's that way. But t- tell us the story of the Red River book. Okay. Well, I I I, I got my first teaching job in Cornwall. I moved down to Cornwall, uh, which is about 150, 200 miles from from Bristol, where I sort of come from and where I was living. My brother was living down there as a teacher. I went to live in his house with his young family. And I used to go out walking with his dog. And one day was walking across the absolutely smashed landscape that it was a, you know, really ripped up kind of landscape that he lived in the middle of, and I came, which was a mining landscape, tin mining landscape, and I came across one day running through a green field, this, this small meter yard wide stream, red stream, I mean, it was the most extraordinary sight. And the moment I saw it, I said to myself, uh, I was looking for a subject, basically, and I said to myself, this is it, you know, a red river running through a, a, you know, a green, green, luscious landscape, what an extraordinary sight. And, and I said, right, okay, here we are. We're, and, I, and I will, you know, and I knew immediately that what I wanted to do was to go from the source to the sea. And it took me five, 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 six years of going out, walking, 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 making that work. It's not that long of a river. It doesn't take you five years to walk it. What, what is it you're looking for when you're out? Is it a, a certain atmosphere, a certain diffusion or a clarity of light? Or is it just you know it when you see it? No, I mean, I, 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 I went back and back and back, uh, 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 and I, I kind of I remember there was one site that I found which was a particular jumble of, of old mining gear, and I knew there was a, there, there was there was just the colours. There was a piece of yellow plastic, and there was a pink piece of plastic, and a, a rusty gear wheel, and so on. And I knew there was a picture there, and it maybe took me four or five visits to 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 to, to make that picture. Uh, other times, you know, I'd be, I remember one, one extraordinary moment. I was walking across a field. Uh, there was a little cottage in front of me, and the woman, old woman ran out of this cottage and started yelling at me, telling me to get off her land and so on. <laughs> there was a footpath, legal English footpath across this field, and I had a map, and I said, look, I'm going on the footpath. And she, she harangued me and harangued me, and eventually she said, I know why you're here. You're here too because this is John Harris's cottage, aren't you? And I, I said, no, I don't have a clue who lives here. And she, and she then told me about this man, John Harris, who was a 19th, early 19th century uh, Methodist uh, preacher and tin miner uh, who had written uh, poems. And they, you know, he, in Cornwall, he'd become reasonably kind of quite, quite, quite famous. And um, I went back to his, his poems later on, but she said, go on, take a picture of his house and take a picture of his house. <laughs> and I had, I had one, this time I was using a, a Plaubel Makina camera sort of medium format mm-hmm. and i had one sheet of film one 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 exposure left 
And I thought, do I want to use it on this house? And I stood there and she said, I'm just going to duck behind the wall. So she ducked behind the wall. And I thought, right, I can either go with my with my tongue to make it sound (laughs) or I can just go click. And I thought, damn it, I'll just go click. So I shot this last sheet of film. It's just a fabulous picture, complete utter accident. There's a goat running over the wall. Of the <laughs> and and uh, serendipity, Just you just keep walking. You go around a corner, and one day a field that you've been walking past, there's one picture that didn't quite get into the Red River, one of the most extraordinary pictures I've ever made, where I was walking along with my brother along a tiny lane with these granite, large, big granite walls, and we came around a tiny a corner, and there in a field in front of us, was a mature goat and a, 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 a piglet and a lamb, all in a, in a little triumphant together. Uh, incredible sort of scene. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I took a picture of that. And I've been around that, that bend dozens of times since. I've never seen anything like it. I'll never, I'll never walk around a corner and see anything like that again in my life. So you just get out and you just keep walking and keep walking and accruing very slowly, one picture after another, and also assembling one picture fits into the pattern of the study. Yeah. And you, you know, you assemble, you assemble the study as you go, and I, I just love working like that. It, it's funny how for photographers there, there's a ratio, there's a relationship between patience and serendipity. Um, you, you have to have the patience to allow the universe to construct itself in a way that, that is surprising and fresh. That's a very good way of putting it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I, I do think, I mean, you and I are both um, on the far side of 50 and 60 and um, that, 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 that teaching patience is probably the hardest thing, you know, for the, for the people just coming into the field because we are an entire planet built, you know, on speed as a merit these days. But patience. Yes. There's, there's, but one of the other, uh, there's a there's a Scottish poet called Thomas A. Clarke who wrote a, a, a poem one day called In Praise of Walking, which is actually published in a small book. It's a sculptural object in its own right. And he writes the first line, I can't quite quote it verbatim, something about, you know, each of us can, each day can simply open the open open our front door and walk out into the world and it's a new world. Mm-hmm. And so it does take patience, but it also takes and understanding this is why I don't really feel a need to travel. That what's outside my front door is just as interesting as what might be outside, you know, a, you know, a monastery up in the up the mountains of Tibet and so on. Uh, so, so it's recognizing that the world is just as remarkable and as extraordinary wherever you are. Then you you don't necessarily you just need to you know use your eyes basically in your mind. That is wonderful advice for everyone, and yet you were just recently, or relatively recently, bit by the travel bug. Uh, you went to one of my favorite places on the planet, down to New Zealand, which mm. in, in many ways, you know, is very similar to um, Great Britain, and and you know, not as well. But you you also had a really interesting take because you went to, as you said, the normal places, Milford Sound, um, that, but. And, and you were photograph, photographing wisps of water, but you you described your aesthetic, your, your vision as a photographer down there, very poetically. Tell me about being in New Zealand. Well, yeah, uh, my uh, my wife's father comes from Wellington or came from Wellington, and okay. we've been together thirty five years, and it took us thirty three years to get to see <laughs> his, his hometown. We always wanted to always wanted to go. 
And eventually, my, the university I worked with, Plymouth, had a link with Massey University. And eventually, I was invited over there to do a workshop and, and, and um, to give a talk. And they said, if you're coming all the way over, we want you to make some work. And I said to them, I don't, I don't work and travel. You know, it's just not, not what I do. And they said, look, we're right. paying you to come all the way over here. Can you please just at least do us the favor of trying to take a few pictures? And so that, 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 that took me there. I, I worked with, uh, on, on a workshop, a bookmaking workshop for a week. And there are, there are a lot of really wonderful photographers in New Zealand. We don't know about them because the country is so far away and it's, it's hard for them to get their work out. But anyway, I mm-hmm. met probably two-thirds of the really fine landscape photographers in New Zealand. And uh, they have a very particular uh, sort of set of circumstances there that anybody who engages seriously in making work in New Zealand from a New Zealand perspective has to negotiate the very, very sensitive issues that, that, that relate to the colonialization of the country. Right. And so a lot of them would spend, you know, maybe I met people who spent a couple of years, uh, they wanted to make a piece of work, they spent a couple of years negotiating with the, the, the you know, the Maori um, community that, that had a historical ownership of the land, explaining what they wanted to do and getting assurances and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, they made really, really dense, complicated, deep pieces of work, a, a kind of engagement that I knew I couldn't possibly even begin to, to, to kind of match. And so that made me think, well, this is ridiculous. How am I going to make any work here? And uh, after the workshop, my wife and I, we were, we, we were given a car and we started driving around and I started taking pictures out the car window and, um, and a Winograd. And again, I, and I just really loved that. This is really, this is really fun and really interesting. And I, I realized that what I was going to do was I was going to make a set of pictures that nobody in New Zealand could make. And I was basically going to be a tourist. I was going to travel and I was going to explore, you know, New Zealand from that, that, that kind of perspective. And so we went to Milsom Sound and, 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 you know, and other, 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 other extraordinary places. Had most, I've been three times now. I want to go a fourth mm-hmm. time because I'm doing a seasonal. I wanted to make a piece of work over each of their seasons. But the oh, pandemic, pandemic got in the way. But the, the, the freedom that allowed me to suddenly just, to, to, you know, I've got 45 years of working. Here's a site. I will explore it over a period of time. Da, da, to just wander around in a car, I mean, I wasn't exclusively taking pictures out the window, but, but having fun uh, and just engaging with the place in a, in a completely different way was extraordinary. It released a lot, of, a lot of a different kind of energy, which gets into the pictures. The other thing I decided to do, which was probably the most radical thing I have ever done as a, 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 in my photographic practice, when I went to New Zealand, and I astonished myself by this, was that I, I, I made the very brave and bold decision to move the camera through 90 degrees. So I'd spent 45 years taking landscape format pictures. Mm-hmm. And in New Zealand, I turned the camera through 90 degrees, and it completely changed the whole way I thought about making pictures. And I just absolutely, I loved it. Uh, and it, it, again, it just shows you how, it showed me anyway, how, you know, you don't, you know, these tiny, tiny, tiny little shifts, you don't need to make big grand gestures, but just by making a tiny little rule change in your practice, it opens up all sorts of wonderful things. The funny thing about those New Zealand pictures though, and I, I'm nearly finished this bit, is that, I've got about 20 pictures, which I really like. I mean, they're just really, you know, beautiful pictures. And I've, you know, shown a few of them uh, here in Britain. 
But I showed them to the, 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 the Anne Noble, who's the professor of photography who invited me out there, who's a very interesting artist in her own right. And she looked at them and she said, Jem, they're very beautiful pictures. Uh, they're really remarkable pictures. I love them. But nobody in New Zealand is going to be the least interested in them at all. You'll never get a show in New Zealand. And I said, why is that? She said, well, you're just showing us what we already know. We live in a beautiful country. <laughs> yep. Uh, I said, oh, oh, well. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. <laughs> it, it, it is frightening for photographers to be there because you look at the landscape and you think, how in the world am I going to do this when there are so many people who've done it before you? Yeah, um, exactly. And so, yeah. mm. and then, but you, you find that small shift, um, which then makes it your own. And, and speaking of small shifts, a, another story that, that I find captivating, um, you switched from film to digital, and, and you have a story about walking into a gallery where your, your digital work was on one side, your film work was on the other, and both really were profound for you in, in, in a special way. Tell, tell us that story. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll back a bit, but not much. Okay. So basically, in, in about 1994, I started working with a 10.8 camera. And I, I, I spent 20, over 20, 25 years working, making pieces of work, probably four or five studies using, using 10.8 color, mm -hmm. color like film. I absolutely loved it, making either contact prints or large prints. And I, I thought to myself, I want to see, see my life out as an analog photographer. I, I really don't like digital photography remember i was teaching so you know i was seeing right. an awful lot of work by students that was by then this is probably 10 10 years ago now and then one day i thought to myself look this is ridiculous i'm teaching all these i'm working with all these young people who are making pictures with digital camera and i haven't a clue how they work or anything you know <laughs> so, so i've got to buy one and just start start kind of experimenting with it uh which i did and that led on to the beginning of the work that we'll talk about in a minute, this for, for Winter's work. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but, but, but something else happened, uh, which, which relates to this, which you mentioned at the beginning, well, you, was that I, I fell downstairs. I was visiting a friend in London. I went all the way, head downstairs, to, landed, fortunately, on my elbow rather than my head. If I landed in my head, I wouldn't be here talking to you. And it completely <laughs> smashed my left elbow up. And so I couldn't work with a 10-8 camera for about six or eight months because I had to have surgery and so on. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't work one-handed. And mm -hmm. so I started going out with this little digital camera and exploring that more. And also, because I had only one arm, I was using the digital camera in a very particular way, which was that I was uh, holding it one-handed. It was a Sony, um, full-frame sensor Sony, and I was using it one-handed. I was looking at the screen, and I was setting the ISO really high, about a thousand, so so that basically I wasn't getting any camera shake holding the camera with one hand. 
And that's how all the work that we're going to be talking about began. And the first time I made any prints, I had this very small show here in, as you're saying, in this gallery. And I showed three large sort of meter and a half by meter uh, prints from the the 10.8 camera on one wall Mm -hmm. and three small 12 by sort of 16 inch uh, digital pictures on the other. And when I went into the gallery, exactly as you said, I looked at these digital prints. Never the first time I'd ever seen my prints framed. I thought, God, these are these. I'm really, you know, this is. I love this. These are amazing. And then I turned around and looked at these three large, ten eight enlargements. And I went up and looked at them and thought, Oh my God, these are these are wonderful, you know. <laughs> and I turned around again, and I I was I was absolutely torn. Um, but anyway, I haven't made now, I haven't exposed a sheet of film six or seven feet away from where I'm sitting at the moment. I've got two fridges with about three or 400 sheets of 10.8 film. Way, <laughs> way out of date. I haven't shot any 10.8 film in, in seven or eight years. I, I hope actually to get back to it, but there's something, there's something extraordinary about walking out with a, with, a, with a camera and maybe making one or two exposures in a whole day. Yeah. Uh, whereas with a digital camera, you know, it's it's a very different way of working. Twenty four frames a second. Do you know the story? Just just as an aside, do you know the story of Les Paul, the guitar player no. from the nineteen fifties and sixties? Um, the the famous Gibson guitar is the Les Paul model. Anyway, he fell and oh no, it was a car accident. I take that back. Shattered his left arm, his right, right arm. I take that back. Right. Um, and the doctors um, couldn't repair it, so he had them fuse it. In, yeah. At a ninety degree angle, <laughs> so he could conti- so he could continue to play guitar, and all of his major hits came after that. Wow! Um, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, these 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 accidents. I mean, you you talked about serendipity earlier on. I mean, these mm-hmm. accidents, these moments. We might come on to the one, that, the, the word, the one that got all this work going in a minute. They're just, they just, they just, where your life just turns on a on a your whole life just turns on a, a ninety degrees when when in the moment. They're, yeah. they're, they're incredible when they happen. Well, Jim, I mean, th- there's a million things I would still want to talk to you about, but we, we have to get to the book. Um, other things, everybody, when you go out there, you've got to look at um, all of these projects. I mean, you even went back to, you know, what, 10, 15 years later, you went back to a previous project uh, and reimagined it all again. But mm. I've, I have this book now in front of me called Four Winners, which is, as I said at the top, just impressively beautiful, very soft, very painterly, and, and deeply emotional work, which you describe in the afterword. This is a book that begins and ends with strong sadness and, and, and strong emotions. So before we talk about any of the images themselves, tell us the story of how this book came to be. Right. Okay. I'm going to try and do this without getting too emotional. I have, I have, I'm one of four kids and two brothers. My youngest brother was born mentally disabled. He had an accident at his birth. And uh, I spent a lot of time caring for him. And he he, mm-hmm. he, um, he had an amazing life. He was an elephant keeper. I'm six foot mm. four. He was my height and huge guy, massive bloke, uh, incredibly strong. I mean, he could lift, you know, a couple hundred pounds just straight. Well, he didn't do weightlifting, but, you know, he was worked on a farm. He could lift the most extraordinary. Anyway, he spent 30 years looking after elephants in a zoo here. And then one day after our parents died, when I was sort of, you know, looking after him, basically, he had a huge stroke. And he spent the last 15 years of his life in a nursing home. 
uh, slowly sort of, you know, going, going, going downhill. Anyway, mm-hmm. one day, uh, about seven or eight years ago, I had a phone call in the middle of the night. The phone rang, and I went and picked up the phone and ra- dialed back, and it was a doctor in a hospital telling me my, he'd just been admitted and he wasn't going to live through the night. Well, they didn't think he would live through the night. So I got in my car and drove a couple of hours, and I spent the next 10, 12 hours with him, and he, mm-hmm. he actually pulled through at that time. So I, I, you know, I left him thinking that he was he was going to live, and drove home. I was really shaken, really shaken up, as you can imagine. One is at those times when you know the rug is pulled from underneath you, right? And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to just go back to the river I've been photographing, the local river here. Uh, there was a bend that on the place on the river where I used to sit, and I said, I'm going to go back there this evening. And I drove and I sat down on this river bend and sat on a log, and was thinking about my brother and so on and um, gradually all the sort of the worry and the stress and everything that I was carrying just sort of lifted off because I became completely engrossed in what was in front of me the 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 river the turbulence of the waters it sort of whipped around this river and the grasses and the trees sort of waving the sun had gone down about an hour 45 minutes it was the gloamings they call it in Scotland it was dark there was a pink cloud floating across the view. I was completely engrossed, and suddenly these two mallard ducks pushed out from the bank and swam across the river. And I had this little camera with me, and I just picked it up uh, without any – and I just went, snap. I just took a picture of these ducks walking, going across the river. Nothing special about it at all. And as I was walking back to the car – I thought to myself, my God, I've been given a gift here. This was just an incredible moment. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come back to this bend, this place, whenever I can, after sunset, through the rest of the winter, and I'm just going to stand in the same place on this river bend, and I'm going to wait for the world to present something to me to photograph. And I'm going to call the work a bend in the river. And so I had a methodology and I had an approach and I thought this is this is just what a, what a wonderful thing to do just to rather than go searching for pictures I'm just going to stand there and wait for the pictures something to something to happen to me. And that's what I did for the rest of that winter maybe about 30 visits and uh, it was wonderful most of the pictures were birds flying to roost um, right. or the surface of the water and and, and things like that. I, I like because I'm shooting. I was shooting in the, almost in the dark, you know, at one thousand, two thousand, five thousand ISO. So I was getting these very, very soft, soft pictures, and I was beginning to teach myself to to color print uh, with a with a with a with a inkjet um, uh, pigment printer. And um, I thought after that year, I didn't really resolve anything. I said I'm going to go back next year, and so I went back the next year, and that's when the book started. So, so then that, that next year, there I am standing. You know, maybe I allowed myself to walk, you know, to walk two hundred yards backwards and forwards on this riverbank, just waiting for something. And one day, I was standing there in the middle of December, you know, about seven years ago, when suddenly a whole lot of swans flew in and landed on the river. Now I'd seen these swans; they'd been feeding on the floodplains all the way around the flat floodplains on the on the grasses fields all the way around the river. And I didn't realize this is what they did. They all, they flew in, and of course they 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 land on the river and they preen and they socialize and they they sort of you know do do their bit, uh, and they spend the night on the river because it's safer, no foxes or predators, and and uh, they 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 were just 
performing in front of me. Extraordinary. Um, the first pictures in the book are, 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 are of, of these groups of swans moving backwards, forwards in the, in, in incredibly dark. I mean, I could hardly see them. What the camera was registering, there's an immense amount of noise in these pictures, which I actually sort of learned to, to you know, absorb into the picture making, basically. Can't get rid of it. Uh, because they're, they're about two or three stops underexposed at about 5,000 ISO in almost in the pitch dark. And, uh, and I taught myself to sort of make reasonably good prints of them and after a few after a few weeks, I thought, I wonder what they do in the morning. So I went, started going to the same place in the dark in in in, in the morning, waiting for the the day to gradually unfold. And sure enough, they kind of came round the bend again, and they sort of preened and socialised and fed. And then after about half an hour, forty five minutes, they started taking off and flying away. And I came up with this idea of making a piece of work in what I call two movements. So the idea was that in the first movement, the birds flew in and landed on the water and and did their their their, their moving around and then went off around the bend and spent the night. And then the second movement, they came round the bend again. It got light and they did their their socialising and then they flew off. And so I, I conceived of this 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 sort of swooping in and and, and lifting off as as a piece of work. And that's what I made, and that's 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 the first winter in the book, and um, it was such an extraordinary thing to do. I mean, just standing when you know to watch twenty, thirty swans take off and listen to them is is quite an incredible experience in this in this sort of half light. And I thought I'm going to go back next year. It's such a wonderful thing to do. So I went back to the same place, and they weren't there. And I sort of kept going back in, in the evenings, in the mornings. And there was just one or two, not this large group. And then one morning, I, I heard this sound some way off, and I, there, which was the sound of, let's say, 20 or 30 swans lifting off simultaneously. It's quite an extraordinary noise. I thought, oh, they mm-hmm. moved. So I went round the bend a bit further and came across the place where they, they were spending the night. and the second winter and the third winter and the fourth winter are all made. It's, it's, I've got 200 yards or 100, maybe 100 yards of riverbank. I go down there in the dark um, about an hour and a half before sunrise. I can just make out the, you know, the outline of the trees. And I stand on the riverbank and move to one or two places and, 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 and watch. Sometimes there are you know, 60, 80 swans and a couple hundred geese and ducks. Sometimes there's just one or two. And my basic aim is that each time I just want to come away with one picture and that I would, that would make, if I make 40 visits, that's 40 pictures, I make a new piece of work. And every winter I go there, even though I'm going to the same place, same methodology, probably the same birds, I make a new piece of work with a different, different narrative, even though the pictures look remarkably similar. Well, they do and they don't, because I think the effect of, of going through this book is you are allowing me, in, in the middle of, of you know, Minnesota and North Dakota, a, a glimpse at that deep knowledge, that, that you know, absolutely intimate, long-term understanding. It's not a picture of, well, here's a pretty picture of a bunch of swans. It's, it's 
swans over four years. Um, there is a narrative here. There is an evolving place. Mm. And there is a sensibility. You talked about noise a minute ago. And yes, you have just beautifully incorporated that into a kind of mist feel, into a kind of, of uh, softness that is, frankly, an act of love. I mean, looking at, at these uh, images here. The, the ability to develop a sense of place versus a sense of an artifact, you know, a single swan mm. or whatever, mm. um, I, I think is one of the real attributes of a long-term study of anything. And, and this one, with the use of color, with the use of setting, um, really does, uh, I, I think, you know, deserve the reputation. Well, thank you, Scott. I mean, one of, one of the things is that I suppose that I had to be clear in my mind was, I've actually made lots of people, my father was an ornith- was was an amateur ornithologist from from his childhood, and I, I didn't realize we didn't realize until later on, you know, after he passed away, that every single holiday we ever had, family ever, you know, he was one of these hardworking guys who had ten days holiday a year. Every single holiday we ever had just so happened to be quite close to an interesting kind of ornithological site. <laughs> we didn't, didn't realize that at the time. Anyway, he, he passed on this, this sort of profound, uh, you know, use the word love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, when I, when I, he, he, you know, my aim in life each, each day is to wake up and, and, and if I hear a blackbird singing outside, it, I'm a happy man and I know that, it, it, you know, the day, another day has turned and so on. So, yeah, it, 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 it's love and appreciation. But one of the key things is that I'm a landscape photographer. You know, I'm not an ornithological photographer. I'm not trying to make pictures of, of, of you know, I'm not using, I use one camera, one lens. I've got a 55 mil lens. It's the only lens I use. I don't have any. It's quite funny. Sometimes when I go on ornithological trips, because I'm doing a study, a long-term study of um, uh, seabirds, gannets and so on around our coast, and I go on a bird 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 outing to an island and there might be like 50 kind of photographers on this boat with these enormous great big bits of glass and lens and so on and there's me with my small sort of full frame sony with the 55 but they look at me as if i'm just nuts you know but i'm a landscape photographer and yep. and i think about this landscape as uh, as uh, and i talk around a little bit about this in the book as a theater i'm standing and i'm actually participating in a theatrical moment. The river that I photograph is highly volatile. In other words, it's continuously changing. It's up and down all the time, winds blowing. And one of the wonderful things about going back so many, I've probably been now two, three hundred, four hundred times to, to, you know, to make pictures on this, on, on this river every single day, the, the river's in a different state the wind's moving in a different direction. It's pushing the ripples in a different way. The bird behave, birds behave differently. Obviously, each day, the atmospherics, the sunrise, the light, the cloud, the rain, the snow, uh, not that we get much snow, every single day is, is a completely unique experience. And I've got an awful lot of pictures of these, uh, these, 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 these reviews <laughs> now. And I, every single one of them, I just love, uh, you know, I, I enjoy sort of looking at. Uh, and and of course the other thing that happens is every now and again I've I've got one day last year uh, more than in fact one day in the book which which isn't isn't sort of singled out the twelfth of December two thousand and eighteen I was down there in the dark and it was it turned into a misty slightly foggy morning 
and I spent two hours there waiting for the for for you know for the for the birds to move and the light to come on. And I've shot I don't know how many pictures, but I've actually got a piece of work of about twelve fifteen pictures, which is just that one dawn, mm. and it just moves from darkness through to sort of almost white out. And to be able to make a piece of work over you know an hour and a half, so some days are just absolutely extraordinary, amazing experiences. But one 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 picture a day. That's that's the ambition. That's that's fairness. You you made me promise that I would ask you what you're working on now. The eighth winter. Oh. Yeah, I was down there this morning. I've been down and there the last five mornings. Uh, so that yeah, I'm now on year eight. The six I skipped because this, I, I regard that first winter I told you about when I was doing the roosting. That's actually that's one. So I, after I finished the book, I kind of thought that's it. You know. I've done it. But the next winter I went back and I made a new piece of work, and that's called The Fifth Winter. And then last winter I made another piece of work. That's I've jumped the sixth. That's the seventh winter. And then this winter I've, I've started – I thought I, last year I thought that's it. I've done it. And I changed camera last year. I moved away from the Sony and I started using the Fuji full-frame camera. Mm-hmm. And again, I turned it through 90 degrees. And bizarrely, even though I'm doing exactly the same thing, I'm standing in the same place, I'm, you know, the same birds, the same river, because I've got a different camera, because I moved it through 90 degrees, the pictures are completely different. And um, we'll have to wait to see if if anybody's interested. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if the world can take too many more pictures of these this, this river, but I, I can't stop. Well, I don't know if the world can, but I certainly can. Um, I, I, I think this is extraordinary work. Jem, this has been fantastic. Everybody, the book is called Four Winters. Um, you can find it easily enough online. It is an, an absolutely necessary book. Jem, thank you very much. Well, it's, it's a pure delight, Scott. Thanks for your questioning. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.